Section six of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Book one, chapter six, piano. The pedal is a good servant, but a bad master. Musical Birthday Book The sound of a piano came through a window that opened on to a stone balcony. The hesitating notes echoed along a street or avenue, which had been lately built not far from the Arc de Triomphe at Paris. The music struck the stone and reverberated into the dry blazing sunshine, and then seemed absorbed in the dust and the acacia trees that were planted at intervals along the road and which cast their dumpy shadows on the ground. Everything was so hot and so glaring that very few people were about. A few par-baked figures went quickly by. The shutters of the houses were closed. The people were hiding inside from the fierce rays. There was a silence about the midday sunshine which must have struck us all at times. When the houses are shut up as if in protest, when the shadows scarcely shade and the sun burns in fierce intenseness, then it is that the distant piano is heard echoing, whose notes we can all remember in so many places in the hottest hour of the day. A close carriage rolled by, a cat darted across the pavement and ran up a white wall, and then after an interval a drifting figure in black came along the pavement. It stopped at the door of the house from whence the piano had been sounding. The figure was only Susie, who put up a shabby black glove and rang a great bell and when the door opened stepped from the glare outside into the cool vestibule with its stone staircase and glazed arches. Colonel Diamond's scheme had actually come to pass. Tempe and Joe were established at Paris, and the music lessons and the meetings he had hoped for were realities, serious realities to Susie, who conscientiously spared nothing to fulfill her bargain, and came wearily through the blazing streets day by day, trying to stimulate her pupil into some genuine effort and interest. Tempe looked upon it all as very great fun. She thought it must be of great advantage to Susie, with her shabby gloves, to have her for a pupil. She was as enthusiastic as ever about her, and ready to patronize her to any extent, all the more so that Aunt Fanny, who was forever surveying the world from her own particular pedestal, had for some weeks past been made uneasy by Miss Holcomb's visits to Tempe. She remembered Susie quite well, Susie and her pretty looks and her sudden blushes, and it didn't seem to Miss Bolsover that this young lady was at all the sort of person who should be constantly an inmate of her brother-in-law's house. Aunt Fanny's tacit objections had, if anything, given extra interest to the music lessons for Tempe. One letter after another had been coming, deprecating, hinting, suggesting a whole series of music masters. There was Pocaforte, so well spoken of, Air Thompano, so highly recommended. On this particular morning, Miss Diamond, crossing the hall, had found the usual Aunt Fannyad lying on the table. This one was more emphatic, if possible, than any which had gone before. Tempe opened her eyes as she read it. It was difficult to forget it entirely. She could not but feel of some extra consequence with such a letter in her pocket. "'You are old enough to know something of life,' wrote Aunt Fanny, "'and I need not say that this is for you alone. Do not encourage that girl too much. 
You must be wise for others. Joe is young, and even your father is of an impulsive nature, and might not be able to see, as a woman does, by some instinct what secret motives a girl may conceal beneath an apparently artless manner. When the servant announced la maîtresse de piano pour mademoiselle, Tempe jumped from her stool and came forward even more eagerly than usual. "'How could you come through this furnace?' she said. "'How brave of you! How glad I am to see you!' Miss Tempe was not a little transformed from the wild nymph of Tarndale waters, and even the fashionable young lady at the castle might seem outdone by the present frizzed, flounced Parisian belle. Tempe was not unconscious of her elegant appearance, and she occasionally put on a curious, starched, and mincing manner to match her toilette. Jo used to laugh, but her father was rather dazzled by it, and thought that she now reminded him of her poor mother. But if Tempe was improved, Susie was very much altered by her few weeks' experience of the changes and chances of life. Her innocent beaming look was perturbed, and the clear waters of her eyes were troubled. Her clothes looked shabby and dusty in the hot white glare, and among the gilded splendors of the colonel's drawing-room, the smart armchairs and satin sofas that were sprawling about the room. Great flowered jars stood filled with handsome exotics and candelabra on the chimneys. The curtains were silk covered with Chinese bridges, the tables were rampant with golden legs. Tempe, radiant in the center of this shrine, sat, with the pedal down, banging at the piano. The boy looked up from his book and nodded, without changing his attitude, as Susie came in. "'How tired you look,' says the hostess, helping the black figure off with its black hat and dusty shawl. "'Tempe, do ring for some seltzer water,' says the boy on the sofa without looking up. "'One never gets anything in this house without making a fuss.' Our friend Tempe gave a tug to the great bell rope, and the seltzer came just as Miss Holcomb, turning pale, had sunk wearily into a seat by the piano. "'There, take that,' says Joe, getting up lazily, filling a glass, and giving it to the music mistress. One orders things for oneself, and somebody else always wants them. Susie was not offended. She laughed and drank, and as she drank, the color came back. Presently the lesson begins. Miss Holcomb can hardly aspire to the title of music mistress, but she is thoroughly in earnest and doing her very best. Miss Diamond is not in the least earnest.' conversational digressive she attends on and off makes the same mistakes over and over again and presently begins a discussion about the pedal the passage should be played lightly and not with too much expression says susie and she bends forward serious and stern and plays the passage with a very precise and delicate touch i don't agree with you says tempe quite unconvinced i like the pedal myself and i like people to play as if they felt the music all over not as if they were only listening to it but putting the pedal down does not always mean that one feels more intensely, said Susanna. It means that one says more about one's feelings. I like talking about my feelings, said Tempe. If I feel a thing, why should I not say it? I like to look at you. I think you perfectly lovely, and I like to tell you so. There goes Tempe's pedal, said the boy, looking up from his book. Papa said so, too, cries Tempe. It always sickens me to hear the second-hand conversations about myself, repeated Joe, turning over a page. Whoever would repeat conversations about you, cries Tempe with a sisterly shriek of laughter. G-sharp, G-G-G, please, says Miss Holcomb, blushing and striking the note, and once more the two start off on their pilgrimage along the weary pages of the music book, 
among the shoals and the pitfalls the occasional flats and sharps from level to level over a mountain pass and so at last into a wide and lovely plain easy smiling and beautiful and then the drawing-room door opens and the colonel comes in tempy looks round and leaves off playing altogether well papa she says cheerfully what have you been about joe gets up somewhat disconcerted from his sofa pulls down a blind pulls it up again and goes out of the room the music mistress glances at the clock the colonel sits down stiffly on a chair in the middle of the room he looks somewhat out of place though it is his own hired golden chair in his own hired house he is not an uncommon type of colonel well brushed and baked with a brown face and a white moustache and an expression of great seriousness his manner took people in who did not know him well even susie felt a little in awe of him here especially more so than in the apartment at home she blushed up nervously to-day when the colonel turned to his daughter and said tempy if you will put your bonnet on i will take you for a drive i have a few words to say to miss holcombe first have you papa says tempy looking surprised and then she remembered that the lessons had not yet been paid for and added oh to be sure and left the room banging the door and singing at the pitch of her voice i wanted to ask you a question said the colonel looking very much embarrassed i can only beg you my dear young lady to take it in good part as it is meant and he looked away as he spoke you are perhaps aware he continued that i am an older friend than i imagined when i first had the pleasure of meeting your mother at madame du parc's i must have known her at carlisle before her second marriage did you know mamma so long ago said susanna blushing with pleasure quite young and old people are alike in respecting the past i have lived so little with her that i scarcely know all her old friends i hope you will always remember me as one of them said the colonel very courteously and then he sighed a little sadly it seemed to him so unlikely that this bright young creature should have any constant remembrance or thought for him as for his own recollections they were of the vaguest description and now said the colonel looking thoughtfully at the neat reflection of himself in the great gilt mirror opposite i am going to ask you to speak plainly to me as to an old friend and to forgive me for asking you whether your good mother keeps the control of the money which comes to her in her own right she kindly trusts me and is good enough to tell me of her affairs at times and now i find that she is in some temporary annoyance from which i should most gladly relieve her if the colonel had gone on talking without looking at susie but suddenly some movement reflected in the glass caught his attention and he turned round in some consternation the girl's pale face had flushed crimson her drooping eyes were full of tears of angry shame and vexation she seemed to shiver with ill-concealed annoyance the colonel had given the note into her hand has mamma been writing this to you she said the first sentence seemed strangely familiar it is with the greatest reluctance she read and then your kind and generous heart she had seen it all before oh that is his doing he made her write susie cried with a sort of passionate choke starting up and throwing the letter away it was a most painful moment the colonel felt quite bewildered and distressed he backed his chair my dear young lady said he pray pray be calm we are all of us at times accustomed to look for help from those who are interested in us literary men we know are not very practical mr marney may have been unfortunate in his arrangements 
unfortunate said susie bitterly well said the colonel that i will not go into now we must do the best we can under the circumstances and see if we can help your good mother what can you or i or anybody do said susanna with a fresh burst of indignation don't help her don't try to do so believe me it is the kindest thing in the end and pray believe that i come here to give your daughter music lessons and not not to beg for money susie's natural youthful pride overcame her gratitude as she spoke but she could not but melt again when the colonel looking very kindly at her said my dear girl do you believe me when i tell you that i look upon it as a privilege to be allowed to uh participate in your mother's affairs an old fellow does not want much in life my children have all they can require and the one luxury i allow myself is that of feeling that i can sometimes be of use to an old friend as he spoke he put out his hand and susanna as suddenly grateful as she had been unreasonably angry caught it in both hers dear colonel diamond forgive me how much too good you are she said and her voice seemed to vibrate and to fill the room the colonel who had lived a very lonely life although he was surrounded by many people felt as if his whole fortune might be well bestowed if it brought forth one such sweet look and tone as this he was immensely touched and interested he might have said so if he had followed his impulse but he resisted it and only looked very kindly at the beautiful young creature struggling for the first time with the bitter experience of life and its impossibilities he was still holding her hand and she was still looking at him with her grateful speaking eyes when the door opened and tempy walked in ready dressed for her outing bonneted jacketed with her yard-long gloves buttoned tight and a general air of business-like expectation the colonel let go susie's hand susie blushed up she knew not why how often it happens that the great events of life seem to come about by chance quite simply in a moment it was with aunt fanny's letter in her pocket that poor tempy flung open the drawing-room door and walked in upon the tete-a-tete dear me said she how very strange and she looked at susie with a disagreeable stare not unlike one of aunt fanny's own glasses what do you mean tempy said the colonel firing up is this the way you dare to speak to me and to your friend when people who love each other quarrel the absence of accustomed tenderness is almost worse than the superadded anger of the moment tempy strong in her feeling of injured innocence felt bitterly aggrieved my friend papa said she you seem to have monopolized her then remembering aunt fanny's warnings i would not believe it till now i suppose this is what she has been coming for all this time the colonel white with passion turned from tempy to susanna who was standing scared and holding to a chair then he closed his eyes and the color came back to his cheeks there was something pathetic in his momentary struggle with himself and the voice with which he now spoke my child insults you said the colonel trembling very much and turning to susie and i can only repeat her words and tell you that if indeed i could hope to monopolize you to win your affection i might feel that at last i had a home once more i am in earnest miss holcombe old as i am i can still feel that i have a heart i might not have spoken but i feel it is only fair that you should know the truth now that others have perceived it my life would still indeed have worth for me if i could ever hope that you would consent to be my wife 
Oh, no, 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 cried poor Susie. You have been so dear, so kind. Oh, I must go back to Mamma. I won't come any more. I will try to forget it all. She looked beseechingly from one to the other. Tempy stood hanging her head. The colonel's eyes were following her with a sad sort of reproachful look. It was more than she could bear. Her only impulse was to escape. Papa, papa, what shall I do? said Tempy, bursting into tears as Susie disappeared. The streets were burning still, but Susie scarcely heeded the glare as she flew along. Angry, jarred, vexed, and beside herself, she hurried on. It was not her fault, but she felt as if she had done something wrong. She no longer wondered why Tempy had looked so strange. A longing came over Susanna to fill her mother's tender arms round her, to tell her all, to be comforted. Susie was very tired by the time she got back to the old green blistered gates and turned out of the straight avenue into the desolate little garden, which felt more homelike than it had ever done before. Dermot's straw hat was lying on the grass. Mikey's wheelbarrow was overturned beside it. The little dog came sidling up to meet her. Nothing else appeared. The garden was silent and had a look of desertion. The sitting room was empty, so was the kitchen. Susie knocked at her mother's door and called, Mama, Dermot, Mikey, but no one answered. In the dining room she found a solitary plate set ready on the table with some cold meat and a cake, and some fruit in a dish, but no signs of anyone. Denise came in from her marketing with her basket on her arm, filled with green stalks and heads, while the girl was still standing doubtfully gazing at the preparations on the table. Well, says Denise, you have found the letter? Madame laid your cover before she went off. They caught the omnibus. There is what she wrote on the stove. A note lay there with its address, Susie, in Mrs. Marney's writing. The girl had overlooked it. Papa wants to give the little boys a treat to St. Cloud, but I dare not let them go without me. Dermy knocks up so easily, and Mikey is so wild. How I hope our kind friends may keep you, darling. I hate to think of your long, lonely day. Denise has a cream cheese for your dinner, and you will find the key of the cupboard under the clock. Ever your loving mother. Poor Susie, it was all nothing, but she began to cry. She had been spoilt, she told herself. She had been so needed by her grandfather, so much made of, and now her old home wanted her no more, and her mother had never wanted her. She loved her with all tenderness, only she did not want her as some mothers want their daughters. Another day Susie might not have felt so morbid, nor had occasion to be angry with herself. Today she was vexed with everything, with every one, with her mother, with the colonel, with Tempy, with herself. It was right and natural that Mrs. Marney should go. Only a sort of lonely feeling came over Susie as she thought of it all. She had so longed for her mother all the way home. It was in vain, she scolded herself, and tried to put the thought away. It came back again and again in different shapes and aspects, as persistent thoughts will do. Now wiping her eyes, she pictured the little family party to herself. The mother, the little boys, the father. The children's happy laughter. Then she saw another vision of the colonel and Tempy driving off happily together in their big comfortable carriage, and then she seemed to see herself as she was, in her black gown, in the silent little garden, alone. Her fancies were cruelly vivid that night. Everything seemed touched with a bittersweet intensity of feeling. It must not be, Susie told herself, and tried to eat the cream cheese and determined to conquer her troubles. 
She was glad, however, to be distracted from them and to see Madame returning home along the garden walk. Madame was dressed in solemn costume de ville. She wore a big bonnet and a veil. She carried an umbrella and was neatly looped up in festoons. What? All alone? said the little old lady. Oh, it is not convenient, a young girl like you. I've been out to take little Marie home to her parents in La Rue Levassier. But it is different at my age. Your mother, she should not permit you to go alone. You shall come with me tonight. Have you seen my apartment? Come in, come in. The rooms are well disposed, are they not? Madame's apartment consisted of three rooms, opening into one another, which she seemed to think a singular and admirable arrangement. There was a little ante-room where she dined, then came a salon with four big chairs in striped petticoats, and two huge vases on the chimney filled with red and blue calico cornflowers and roses. Beyond this came the bedroom, where Madame treasured more calico bouquets and a tall crucifix, where also stood the large bed in which she reposed, with its brown cover and fringes. There was also an armoire de glaces she was very proud of, in which she kept her black jackets and white frilled caps, and where she now carefully enshrined her bonnet, reappearing shortly in her usual costume, and prepared for a confidential grumble. There was an endless variety to Madame's grievances. Max's iniquities, the weather, the lodgers, the extraordinary amount of rheumatism in the quartier. It was, however, some relief from Susie's own less tangible troubles. The evening was still further diversified by the appearance of two visitors who were seen coming in at the garden gate. "'Ah, Monsieur Fayard and Mademoiselle,' says Madame, well pleased. "'Let us go out and meet them.' The visitors were accommodated with chairs and made welcome, and presently Susie found herself one in a sober quartet. Monsieur and Mademoiselle Fayard were an old brother and sister living together in the village close by. They were good-natured and kindly disposed to Susie, though Mademoiselle Fayard scanned the young lady's toilette with some severity. "'Do you wear your skirt still puckered in England?' said Mademoiselle Fayard, opening the conversation. "'Oh,' says Madame, "'do you not know how eccentric this English are, my dear Seraphine?' "'How long has the Mademoiselle been in Paris?' says the little old gentleman. "'What does she think of it? I have not seen very much of Paris yet, said Susie distractedly, for all the time she was still listening to Tempe's reproaches and the colonel's voice was in her ears. We must see to that. I mean to take her for a day sightseeing, says Madame. There is to be a grand funeral mass at St. Philippe. We can visit the Chapelle Expiatoire on our way home. And Mademoiselle should see the Duke of Orleans' mortuary chapel, says Monsieur Fayard, adapting his suggestion to what he called the serious of the English character. Oh, how dull, says Mademoiselle Fayard. Take her to the Magazine de Louvre, and let her see the passages and the toys in the shops. And then there are the environs. She should see the environs. There is St. Cloud. We went only last week. It is a most delightful excursion. They make music, and there is dancing, too, on Sundays. You go half the way in a steamer. Mademoiselle Fayard wondered why Susie blushed crimson. At that very minute, the sound of a child's voice crying was heard in the distance. Ah, there is Mamma at last, said Susie, starting up, and hastily taking leave, she went running to the gate to meet her mother. As she reached the garden end, a little group appeared as footsore as weary as anybody could expect to be after a long day's hard pleasuring. Little Mikey was in tears. Susie had recognized the familiar wail. Little Dermy was in his mother's arm, and the poor woman herself seemed scarcely able to stand. 
"'Here we are,' she said wearily. "'Mikey has been a wild boy. He has been naughty all the way home. Dermy has been a darling, but he is tired out. You missed nothing, Susie. It has been hot and tiring. I can't think what possessed Marnie to start off on such an expedition. We went in the steamer and dined at St. Cloud. I wished myself home all the way. Will sister find the boys some bread and milk? They must get to bed at once. No, 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 says Mikey, dolefully. I won't go to bed. I haven't given sister my flowers yet. Well, child, make haste and give them, says the poor, tired-out mother. And Mikey holds up his little hot hand, in which he has been tightly clutching for hours past the bunch of clover and dandelions which he had got for Susie. Thank you, dear little brother, says Susie, catching him up in her arms. Mrs. Marnie sat on the bedside undressing the children while Susie brought up the supper for them. We walked all the way from the boat, says Mrs. Marnie. I thought I should never get home. Marnie went off with some friends. Why did you not take a carriage, Mamma? said Susie. Marnie had got my purse, dear, said her mother. Stand still, do, Mikey, while I untie the strings. And, Dermy, drink up the nice milk like an angel. Is it boiled? Never mind, my pet, it will do you good. Do the angels drink boiled milk? says Dermy in tears. Always, says Mrs. Marnie with much conviction. Then the little tired boys are tucked up in bed and lie side by side with dark eyes following their mother as she comes and goes, folding their clothes, putting one thing and another away. Mikey drops off to sleep first, then Dermy's eyelids fall, and Mrs. Marney takes the light and leaves the room. "'How tired you are, Mamma! Can't I sit up for Mr. Marney?' said Susie as she followed her mother downstairs. She was almost frightened by the tone in which Mrs. Marney suddenly answered, "'Certainly not. That is for me to do, not you. I shall hear him.' "'Good night, my dear.' and she folded her in her arms as if to make up for her vexed tone. And then at last Susie's opportunity came, and with an effort she began then and there to tell the strange story of her eventful day. She expected she knew not what, a shocked sympathy, an exclamation of surprised regret and tenderness. "'Oh, my Susie, you never refused him!' cried Mrs. Marney in consternation. "'Such a kind, good man, so well off, such a gentleman!' She would have said more but that Susie, shrinking from her mother's arms, ran away suddenly into her own room. She had kissed her mother and bade her good night, but she was not comforted now. She had longed to talk to her, the opportunity had come, and she felt chilled and lonely. She had so pined to be at home in her mother's arms, and she had reached the place she longed for, but it was hardly home. She went to her room and undressed and lay down in her little creaking bed with a confused impression of something that she must put away from her mind. Of something, of many things, of Mrs. Marney's passing vexation, the Colonel's reproachful look, and Tempy's angry stare. Had she been unkind to him? He had been so good, so wonderfully good to her, and so at last she fell asleep. End of section 6